everyone. Welcome this morning to Lake Oconee Presbyterian Church. My name is Jeff Birch, and I'm the pastor here at Lake Oconee, and it is my pleasure to be able to welcome all of you, whether you are here in person or on the live stream, to worship this morning. We're thrilled to have you. And if you're visiting with us in person, we're glad that you have chosen to worship with us. It is our prayer and our hope that this will be a time uh, where you get to feel the warmth and the love and the hope, being renewed in hope uh, in our Savior, Jesus Christ. And I hope that you got just a tangible evidence of our, I hope, welcome and warmth with uh, a goodie bag that we have prepared for you out front. So if you're visiting, I hope you got that bag of swag that has all sorts of good stuff in it we would love to have uh, you enjoy. If you're on the end of the rows, end of an aisle, I'd ask you to get the friendship pad started to uh, let us know that you are here and let us know it's an opportunity. And this is whether you're visiting or a long-time attender or member. Several announcements I want to make as we uh, prepare our hearts to go into worship immediately following this service. So here's what will happen. I'll give the benediction. I'll go outside to greet folks for hopefully no more than two or three minutes, and then we'll come back in, and we are having a brief congregational meeting. And the purposes, there are two purposes for this congregational meeting. Everyone's invited. There's no voting. Uh, this is an informational meeting, so everyone's invited. But it's to give a brief presentation of the 2022 budget, as well as a short briefing uh, on some security measures for the church, areas that we want to communicate with you. And so we hope you can stay for that particular uh, meeting. A couple of other things, we, begun, we began last week officer nominations, and this is for the offices of elder and deacon. And so there are nomination forms as well as instructions. There's a sheet out in the narthex. If you have any questions, you could either see myself or Jim Hildebrand regarding that. And nominations will go through the 26th of June, so through the end of this month. We would encourage you to be praying about who, and let me encourage you to really kind of pour over 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1. It's less about gifting and more about character when you read those particular passages. Patriotic Picnic will be on Sunday, June the 26th, immediately following worship down at the pavilion. Uh, burgers, dog, I don't see Brent here this morning, but I think I have the menu right. Burgers, dogs, all sorts of fun stuff, and a cornhole tournament. I can't wait to see who wins that. And so that's going on. Sign up for that. CPR training is on Monday, June the 27th. There is room for 12 people, men and women. It'll be here at the church from 9 a.m. to noon. You can sign up for that. And ESL is coming back. I told you, this is the year of new beginnings. We're relaunching all sorts of stuff, and ESL as well. ESL, for those of you who don't know, stands for English as a Second Language, a wonderful outreach and missional opportunity uh, as we have the opportunity to engage with folks from the community teaching English. Russell Puppy heads up this ministry. See him if you have any questions regarding that. So friends, those are some of the things that are going on in the life of the church, and now let's prepare our hearts for worship.
call to worship this morning comes from Psalm 63, verses 1 to 3. And I want you to note this uh, in terms of our liturgy this morning. At the close of the invocation, I will say something along the lines of, as our Lord taught us to pray, and we will say at that point, in unison, the Lord's Prayer. O God, you are my God. Earnestly, I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory, because your steadfast love is better than life. My lips will praise you. Father, you are our God. You have initiated and administrated the covenant with us and brought us into covenant relationship with you, fulfilling the terms of the covenant in Jesus Christ. May we, filled with your love, earnestly seek you. May we thirst for you. May we faint for you because we do live in a dry and weary land where there's no life, no sustaining, no water. May we look upon you and see you this morning, behold you in your power and glory here in the sanctuary, and we invite your presence to join with us, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Your steadfast love is indeed better than life. And our lips praise you. And we praise you now praying as our Lord and Savior taught us to pray, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil, for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Let us stand and sing one of the great hymns of the faith, A Mighty Fortress is Our God.
come to this portion of our service where we confess our sins. I'm struck how the instruction that comes, you know, much, much teaching and solid doctrine come from the hymns that we sing. So listen to this, let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also. How many of us still cling to this mortal life where our affections, if we were honest with ourselves, Ought to be on Jesus Christ, but we have affections in the security of this earth, the things of this earth, the life of this earth. We don't want to let go. And that's one of the reasons, amongst many, where each week in our liturgy, we need to confess our sins. We need to confess our need for Jesus Christ, our need for grace, our utter dependency upon him are helpless. I know we as Reformed Christians believe in total depravity. There's a lot of times I want to go, do we? Because we sure functionally act like, yeah, I'm flawed and I fall short of the glory of God, but really total depravity, utter powerlessness, utter helplessness. So friends, Our need of confession from Psalm 51, listen to the dependence of David when he says, have mercy on me, O God. You know what mercy is? It's utter, out of your helpless estate, you're crying out for help because you can't help yourself. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Take a few moments to engage with the Lord. Knowing that if you are in Christ, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That ought to free you to be totally and brutally honest. Don't walk around saying you're not anxious. Don't walk around saying you have no fears. Don't walk around saying you're not totally depraved. God's steadfast love was manifested in Jesus Christ, and you are forgiven. This is about restoring that enjoyment of God. 
take a few moments and pray to him personally. And in a few moments, we will pray together our corporate confession of sin. Friends, let us pray together. Lord, we have sinned without considering how much you love us. You see our sins more clearly than we can ourselves. Lord, you know when we are indifferent to your word, the Bible, how often we forget to pray, the times we come unwillingly to worship, and yet we turn to you when we are in trouble. Lord, you know when we are untruthful and when we think evil of others. You see our anger and unfairness to our friends. You know how hard it is for us to forgive. Forgive us and make us clean so that we can obey your call to take up your cross and follow you. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. And the psalmist prays, purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Friends, if you have surrendered in faith and trust to Jesus Christ, this is how God sees you. He sees you as clean, washed, and whiter than snow. He looks upon you with nothing but love, and he sees you as pure. That's how he treats you and sees you. Friends, receive this assurance of pardon. Let's continue to worship standing and singing how deep the Father's love for us.
Our confession of faith this morning comes from the Apostles' Creed. The Apostles' Creed given to unify the church around our core beliefs and core doctrines. And immediately following our confessing our faith, we will have our offertory and take up our offering. Friends, what is it that we believe? Let us declare this in unison. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sitteth on the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen.
As we approach God's word this morning, let's turn to him in a spirit of dependence and ask him to bless not only the preaching of the word, but the hearing of the word as well. Father, we come before you and we praise you that you have spoken to us through your word, that you've given this, us this revelation, not just of the knowledge about you, but a revelation of yourself. We thank you that all scripture is breathed out, is inspired by you, and is useful to teach us, to correct us, to change us, to challenge us, to train us in righteousness. So, Father, we pray that we would surrender to your word, come under your word, and surrender to biblical authority. We thank you, Father, in Jesus' name, amen. If you would turn in your Bibles, I will read for us Romans chapter 8, verses 28 to 30. A short but, oh, what a powerful, powerful passage of Scripture. We, I have to remember, somebody remind me if it hits like 1, 2 o'clock, we have a congregational meeting to follow. I mean, there is just so much stuff. This is, I always have fear and trepidation of some, some to go into this, but now I'm going, oh my goodness, what a pregnant passage. Friends, hear the word of the Lord. Paul writes, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified, and those whom he justified, he also glorified. Friends, this is the word of the Lord given by the triune God of love because he loves you. Well, I can remember doing Young Life work way, way back when, where we always went, or at least the camps that I was privileged to go to always tended to be in the mountains. Many years we went to Saranac up in upstate New York, part of the Adirondacks, and we do that when we went to Colorado, we went to Frontier Ranch in the beautiful Rocky Mountains, and it seemed like there was always a part of our time where we would do a mountain climb, take all the kids and climb whatever mountain you were doing, and of course, going up, it's this combination of exhilarating and grueling at the same time. You know, I was always small, and I'm always like, their legs are going like this and like this, and I'm going like this, like this. Still up the map. If we had these watches and Fitbits and stuff back then, they did the 12,000 steps. I was on 33. <laughs> but you do it, and the point of going up the mountain, yes, it's a challenge and stuff like that, is that by the time you get to the peak and the summit, I needed to have Amy in the choir and everybody with me to sing the glory and the majesty and the power of your holy name, because that's a part of it. You are in awe at the wonder of God and his world and his creation. Now, this is, I've been calling Romans 8, the Mount Everest of the New Testament, the Mount, and I'm sure some of you are going, yes, this is exhilarating. I love the climb. Let's go. Have my pack on. And I'm, others of you are going, oh, this is grueling. And today he's going to tackle four new and predestined. I heard those words. So some of you are going, this is next week, I promise, though, we get to the mountaintop, we get to the peak, we get, we get to look out on all of it. 
But this morning, we're going to spend time. This is such a tremendous passage of what is such a tremendous, maybe the profoundest, deepest, heaviest, and most theological passage in the whole Bible on the key to experiencing God, which is the Holy Spirit. Remember, we've been talking about Romans 8 being all about the Holy Spirit, that the Holy Spirit is the key to genuine experience of God, that the Holy Spirit indwells you and unites you to God, that the doctrine, or because of the doctrine of the Holy Spirit, Christianity is not simply a matter of the head, nor is it simply a matter of the will. It is basically a matter of the heart and of spiritual union with God. That when you become a Christian, the Holy Spirit actually indwells you and unites you to God. Now, here in verses 28 to 30, we're building up close to the end of this chapter where Paul is leading us in this wonderful crescendo. And in this passage this morning that we're looking at, this is perhaps one of the most famous, well-known passages in all of Scripture. And we're going to be looking at it through the lens of the spirit of security. Because in this passage, God wants to show you how you can have utter confidence and assurance, security in him. The question, of course, is how can you? How do we know that God is ultimately for you? And the text gives us three answers to that question. The text shows us his sovereign purpose, excuse me, his sovereign promise, his sovereign purpose, and his sovereign process. See, I try to do these alliteration things and I get confused myself. Three Ps, his sovereign promise, his sovereign purpose, and his sovereign process. And easy to follow, three verses, 28, 29, and 30. So begin with me at verse 28 in God's sovereign promise. And he says, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Now that is an absolutely startling and amazing promise because it is promising. It is saying our confidence, our assurance is in the sovereignty of God. That God is controlling, overruling, superintending everything, all things for our good and his glory. And this is especially meaningful because in the context of the overall, the overarching picture of Romans chapter 8, remember what he said in verse 17, speaking about how we are co-heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him. So here in this context, Paul's talking about how the Christian can face suffering, trouble, pain, persecution, temptation, and the general ordeal of facing life in a fallen world. Paul does not sugarcoat life or reality. So think about this. Let me immediately apply this. How would we be different if we truly meditated upon this, if this became part of our existential being? Not just assented to it, not just believed in it, but if this really became a part of us, if we pushed this, as Tim Keller would say, down deep into our soul. First thing is I think we would actually be a more relaxed people. Knowing that God is utterly sovereign. This tells us that God is at work in all things. Little things, big things, good things, bad things. No matter what, he's at work for his glory 
and our good for what is best for us. So this can become a comfort to us. We don't need to fear life and circumstances. The universe is not run by blind chance. It is run by not only an all-powerful, but a personal triune God. Remember the point of the, who God is as a trinity. Before he created, existing as a trinity, when we read in the beginning God, who is God? He's a triune, tripersonal God. It is that personal God who superintends, who runs everything in the universe and who is ultimately for you. Tim Keller mentions in his study on the book of Romans that the Greeks believed that even Zeus was subject to the fates. How does it make you feel that you're not subject to the fates, but a personal God who's looking out for you, has your best interests, is in control of not only your life, but the entirety of the universe? David Martin Lloyd-Jones, in his commentary on the book of Romans, says it is one of the most glorious things we can ever know about ourselves. He writes, do you know that as a Christian, all things are working together for good for you? Do you know that God is overruling everything in the whole cosmos for your good? Not only does this free us from fear and anxiety, but it also gives us a proper perspective towards suffering, difficulties, and even our failures. John Newton wrote, everything is necessary that he sends, and nothing can be necessary that he withholds. Can you imagine if we believed that? Let me read that again. Everything is necessary that he sends. And nothing can be necessary, no matter how much we think we have to have this. If he withholds it from us, it is not necessary for our good, for our best. That means if we think we require some good thing that God has withheld of us, in reality, we absolutely don't need it. Bad things don't ruin us. They shape us. They mold us. They teach us. They humble us. That means even our failures, even our stupidities. Am I the only one in this room that's done some stupid things in his life? <laughs> even our failures and stupidities do not ruin us. I love Psalm 138, verse 8, that says, The Lord will fulfill his purpose for me. That's rock solid. The Lord who says, I do not change. I'm the same yesterday, today, and forever. He will fulfill his purpose for you. Now, that's comforting and assuring. Now for the hard part. Who receives this promise? Those who love God and are called according to his purpose. That means not everyone is the recipient of this promise. And to love God is more than just saying, I believe in a God, or I assent to a God, or I do my duty, or I try my best. It's not some sort of sentimental feeling. It is a setting of your heart on God so that in all you do, you determine to please him. It's loving him for who he is in himself. As Tim Keller likes to say, it's loving him because he's beautiful, not because he's useful. And see, we endure, we continue to live. And this is challenging because when Paul says that God is at work in all things for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose, there is a strong implication that they do not work for the good of those who are outside of God. 
Now let's ask the question. Let's push this in a little bit. How could that be? And again, I'm totally indebted to Tim Keller for this kind of this train of thought. He says, think about this for a second. In Romans chapter 1, verse 24, Paul writes that God gave them over in their sinful desires of their hearts. Think about that wording. God gave them over. This means that one of the worst punishments you can endure is not God correcting you, not God disciplining you, but God letting you do what you want. God letting you do what you want when you want to. Letting you have the desires of your hearts. In other words, letting them have what they want. See, think for a second. How might that be bad for those who don't love God? Well, people outside of God live based on an illusion. The illusion that they belong to themselves. That they are their own. That they are the master of their own fate, the captain of their own ship, their own self-determiner. That they are autonomous and self-sufficient. They believe, and this is the fundamental, if you would, underneath all our sinful behaviors, the sin of believing that we are in control of our own lives. And so while bad circumstances can wake us up to our true condition as dependent, contingent, mortal creatures, pleasures and successes can, they don't always, but they can reinforce this illusion that we're in control. And they can bring out the worst in our hearts like pride and arrogance and self-righteousness, self-centeredness, self-sufficiency. So in other words, good circumstances can be terrible and bad circumstances can be wonderful. Doesn't mean we take joy in the bad circumstance themselves. It gives us a perspective. To those who love God, we know God is at work in this. Tim Keller recounts the proverb, the same sun that melts wax hardens clay. So what makes life good is not a particular set of circumstances, but how they interact with our heart. And God promises that he will overrule to work them out for good. Which brings us to the next point. What is that good? Does God working everything together for our good simply mean that everything will just work out in the end? No. Look at verse 29 and God's sovereign purpose. Verse 29 says, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. See, verse 28, Paul ended with the words, called according to his purpose. This is where we have to be very careful not to misinterpret this promise. See, we love the promise. We say it to each other all the time. God's at work for everything for our good. And the deceitfulness of sin can seep in there and kind of begin, yeah, somehow if I can just hold on and endure, this will all work out in the end. That's not what God's promising. He's saying God will work out for those who are called according to his purpose. Look at verse 29, and he outlines the purpose. For he says, those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to. He predestined us to something. 
And that something is to be conformed to the image of his son. In order that he, Jesus, might be the firstborn among many brothers. See, verse 29 explains the purpose. And in a nutshell, the purpose is everything that happens to us is working out for our final and ultimate salvation. In other words, for us to be the means by which God accomplishes his mission of cosmic renewal. In other words, called according to his purpose, to be conformed to the image of Jesus. As Christ is to us, we are called to be to the world. See, everything's working together, so we'll be conformed to the likeness, the image of God's Son. See, God is about character change, heart change. What makes everything work together for good is God's purpose. See, think about this. What does it mean to be conformed to Jesus' image? Jesus is the perfect, what does Hebrews chapter 1 say? The radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of God's being. Colossians chapter 1 says, he is the image of the invisible God. That language should hearken in us biblical scholars to where was image and image bearing spoken of earlier in the Bible? Creation of man in Genesis chapter 1. He made us in his image. And of course, what happens after that? We fall. The image of God is not annihilated, it's not obliterated, but it's sure broken. Think of it as like a photograph that has a lot of mud on it. So in other words, we couldn't accomplish our vocation, our purpose of image bearing, which is to extend the kingdom of God, to bring the knowledge of God to the whole earth. So what did God do? He sent his own son to be the firstborn among many brothers, to be the one in whom his purposes are met. All the purposes of God are, and promises of God are yes and amen in Jesus Christ. That's why the whole Bible is about Jesus. It points to Jesus. He is the image of the invisible God, the exact representation. He's the perfect human who fulfills the vocation of humanity, and the Spirit puts us in Christ where we then can live out of this union with Christ. And so the, he has a master design or form, that's Jesus, and what is he doing? He is using every circumstance, every interaction, every aspect of our life to shape, polish, melt, mold, smooth, sculpt, frame, cast, contour us into that master design. You want to know what God is doing in your life? Why something is happening? Ultimately, it's to make you like Jesus. The hard part is we don't value that, do we? Our affections are somewhere else. That's why we sang A Mighty Fortress, because of that line. This mortal life also, we need to learn to let go of that. That it is better for us, it is in our best interests to be conformed to Jesus Christ, because that's our original purpose. That's being what we were designed to be. But our affections are off, our desires are off. We desire... I desire, I want my life to work out more than I want to be conformed to Jesus Christ. I want success in ministry more than I want 
to be conformed to Jesus Christ. I want my family to be happy more than I want to be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. But the amazing promise that God, to those who love God and are called according to his purpose, that purpose is to conform us to the image of his son so that he might be the firstborn, the head of a class, if you will, among many brothers. We're his family, his brothers and sisters, and we're in him, the preview of a new day, the preview of God's new world. That is the purpose toward which God is superimposing and working everything out towards. Amazing. I told you I could spend probably, we could do five sermons on each point, but I need to move on. Verse 30, God's sovereign process. So he has this promise, he has the purpose for the promise, and then he has a process of how it will all be fleshed out. And he says, those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Now, if you start with verse 29 in the word foreknew, there are five verbs which describe the process of God's saving plan worked out in history. And the controlling insight here is that each of these five verbs each describe the same set of people. The same group he foreknew, he predestined, he called, he justified, and he glorified. So real brief, what do each of these mean? Foreknew means he set his love on us. A very common view of, of foreknew is to think of foreknowledge as kind of foresight. That God in his all-knowing knows the future and therefore knows who will him. And of course, God has all knowledge and all foresight. But if that were the case, and if that were the meaning here, verses 29 and 30 would be claiming that everyone would be saved. Because remember the controlling insight. Those God foreknew, he predestined, called, justified, and glorified. It doesn't say that some of those God foreknew. It means when it says, if it, if it meant only foresee, then everyone God foresees, and who would that be? Doesn't God foresee everyone? Think of the logic here. Then everyone God foresee would be glorified. Now, is everyone glorified? No. So in the Bible, when it says that God knows someone, it means he has set his love on them in a personal way. Like in Matthew chapter 7, verse 23, when Jesus says, Depart from me, for I never knew you. Doesn't mean he had a memory loss and was going, hey, would you introduce yourself to me again? Doesn't mean I don't know about you. It means I have not set my love on you personally. In other words, I didn't foreknow you. And predestined here means set a destination for, to make a plan ahead of time. The Greek word means to determine a horizon and set out for it. He has set a destination for us, and that destination is to be conformed to the image of his son. Called means the personal illumination that God sends us to awaken us to the truth. Justified, and we've spent a lot of time over the past months looking at the word justified, is his declaration that we are not guilty. His declaration that we are forgiven and that we are righteousness, that we are righteous, clothed in the righteousness of Christ. 
and glorified. That's the end of the destination. It's all sin being eradicated, being made perfect in body and soul. And isn't it amazing? Look at the tense of these verbs. Paul uses the past tense to describe what is an event yet to occur in the future. He says, those whom he justified, he glorified. According to God. Talk about assurance. And notice he skipped sanctification altogether. He just, does he overlook that? No, he says, this is so guaranteed. Those he just, if he foreknew you, predestined you, called you, and justified, do you think suddenly he's going to let you go? That's not how God works. Now, let me try to embrace, address one possible objection. The elephant in the room, so to speak. The doctrine of predestination. And again, this is where I'm so thankful that Tim Keller was my teacher, because I'm so indebted to him. I think he gives the best argument in favor of predestination or election. And the argument goes like this. He says, unless you embrace the doctrine of election, you are forced to hold that salvation is not by grace alone and God alone, but is ultimately due to something better in those who believe. Now, follow out the logical implication of this if we deny this. For example, take the text in Acts chapter 28, verses 23 and 24. Acts 28, 23 and 24, Paul's in Rome, kind of under house arrest, but people are coming to him. It says, they arranged to meet Paul on a certain day and came in even larger numbers to the place where he was staying. And from morning and evening, from morning till evening, Paul explained and declared to them the kingdom of God. So what is he doing? He's evangelizing. The Great Commission's being fulfilled. And he tried to convince them about Jesus from the law of Moses and from the prophets. Paul didn't have to give the four spiritual laws. He's speaking from the Old Testament, evangelizing them trying to convince them about Jesus. So if you think, for example, that predestination and the sovereignty of God leads us to not evangelize, well, what's Paul doing? Trying to convince them about Jesus. And then it says, some were convinced by what he said, but others disbelieved. So Paul's sharing the gospel. Some believed, some didn't. What makes the difference? Why do some believe and some do not? Now, one possible answer is freedom to choose. Everybody makes their decision. One chooses to believe and the other chooses not to believe. But I want to kind of push the envelope here a little bit. That's why we're having a congregational meeting and you don't have to throw tomatoes at me outside. I'm going to push the envelope a little bit on this one. One sees it one way and the other another way. But push it down. Why does one see it one way and the other another? If we keep asking, this is Dr. Keller's point, if we keep asking why does one believe and the other not, and if we reject the idea of election, we are left only eventually to say that one of the persons is humbler, more open-minded, more open to the truth, or more virtuous in some way. In other words, the real differentiating factor and the critical cause of one's salvation over others is something better in you. You had the open mind enough to believe, and they didn't. You're more righteous, 
and they're not. Friends, that's salvation by works. You're back to justification by works. See, the truth is none of us are any better. We're all in the same boat. None of us have what it takes. You need grace. And the gospel is that you were given the grace to believe. See, Dr. Keller says the best argument then for the doctrine of election is salvation by grace alone. So that even though election causes, and it does cause difficulties, it's a hard doctrine. It's why, for instance, Calvin, everybody thinks all Calvin taught about was predestination. Do you want to know something? In his institutes, which are four volumes and over 1,500 pages long, you want to know where Calvin addresses predestination? Volume three. You have to get almost 1,000 pages. I want to know who sticks to it, 1,000 pages, before you even get him addressing the doctrine of election. So there are difficulties. But without election, you reject the central teaching of the Bible that we are saved by grace alone. The only alternative is to believe that we are saved by something in us which is better than those who are lost. Friends, that is a complete contradiction of the biblical gospel. See, if God loves you because he found something better in us, we're more virtuous, more open, more serviceable, then we will always be, we'll always be insecure. What if I become less virtuous? What if I begin to lose it? And I'm less humble. I become hardened by life's circumstances. It will always lead, anything but grace will lead to insecurity and anxiety. It is only grace that can help us to be secure in God's love. It's only grace that can produce intimacy, praise, and worship. Friends, let's know his promise. Let's know his purpose, and let's know and embrace and surrender to his process. Father, we thank you. In many ways, this is such a rich and assuring passage, but also in many ways, it's a difficult passage. And I pray that you would give us the ability, open our hearts, to wrestle with it and to surrender to biblical authority, to know that it's it has its difficulties, but Lord, oh, what a promise. Oh, what a purpose. And oh, what a process. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Friends, let's, before we have our closing hymn and our benediction, spend a few minutes in our pastoral prayer. And one of the things I want to emphasize this morning in our prayer is that today on the church calendar is Pentecost Sunday. That 50 days after Passover in fulfillment of, in the Jewish calendar, it was the Feast of Weeks from the Old Testament, is the outpouring of the Holy Spirit upon Jesus' apostles and upon the church. In fulfillment of the promise that Jesus gave, when he gave his great commission, he said, go and make disciples of all nations. He said, behold, I will be with you forever, even to the end of the age. And in Acts chapter 1, when he was meeting with his disciples, he said, you will receive power when the Spirit comes upon you. And of course, Acts, 22, Acts 2 narrates the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do praise you for 
this remembrance of Pentecost and Pentecost Sunday and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And we remember that you've told us what the work of the Spirit is, that the Holy Spirit would take from what is Jesus's and make it known to us and in giving us assurance and union, remembrance, communion and union with Jesus. We are given power, and that power is to witness. You say, you will, be, you will receive power when the Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Father, thank you for pouring out the Spirit upon us. And help us to embrace and to believe that you have given us the power to witness, the power to communicate the gospel. We are not alone. You have given us the ability to communicate the gospel, to build bridges, to communicate the works of God to those who are different from us. The ability to understand and, in a sense, speak their language and hear from them. Lord, I pray that we would live and be not only indwelt, but empowered by the Holy Spirit. We ask for more of the Spirit's influence upon us. Lord, we also pray for one another. We pray, Father, as we embrace the promise that for those God loved, called according to his purpose, that all things work together for good. All things are working together for our good and your glory. You are conforming us to your purpose. And so, Lord, we, we pray for healing for those who are sick. We pray for healing for those who are suffering affliction. We pray for the bruised reeds and the faintly burning wicks amongst us. We grieve with those who grieve, and we rejoice with those who rejoice. We pray, Father, that we would be a body that is bringing the good news to Lake Oconee. Lord, we thank you for this opportunity to pray and this opportunity to come before you. In Jesus' name, amen. Friends, let us stand and sing hymn number 310, Rejoice the Lord is King.
reminder that in, let's call it less than five minutes, we will begin our congregational meeting. And now, friends, receive the Lord's blessing, the Lord's benediction, and as you receive his favor and his smile, and as you live from his smile, not for his smile, that you may be a blessing to the world. May the love of God the Father, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you now, this week, and forevermore. Amen.